and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. We left off last week smack in the middle of the Third Crusade. It's April of the year 1191, and a Crusader army is besieging the coastal city of Acre in the kingdom of Jerusalem. This army is led by Jerusalem's new king, Conrad, and by King Philip II of France, who has just arrived. This besieging Crusader army itself is also under siege. Their fortified siege camp is surrounded by Saladin, the powerful Muslim warlord. And in the meantime, Richard the Lionheart is still on his way. He still has not gotten to Acre to help. And it's his story we're following here, which, in a way, is the story of his kingdom. As a reminder, his kingdom at this time is not just England, it is the Angevin Empire. Right? It's also most of modern-day France. He commands more troops than any other king in Europe. And on April 10th of 1191, Richard finally sets off from Sicily to the Middle East. Remember, he'd had to stop there and rescue his sister, who was being held hostage. And Richard's massive army is transported in an appropriately impressive fleet. Now, the makeup of this fleet is not entirely clear. These sources are inconsistent and oftentimes vague, and they'll use different words for the same type of ship. It can get confusing, but our best source, uh, the contemporary historian Roger of Howden, who we'll be using a lot today, uh, he says that this fleet consists of 150 large ships and 53 galleys. And what this probably means is 150 single-masted cogs. These are not very maneuverable vessels, but they have more capacity than the galleys. They can be used to carry horses and food and other cargo that the crusaders are going to need. And then the galleys are smaller. They're ore-propelled, though, uh, so they're very maneuverable. They're ideal for making landings on a beach, for instance. Well, this fleet encounters a storm in the Mediterranean. And in the storm, Richard's main treasure ship and two other cogs, these larger ships, uh, they are wrecked in sight of the island of Cyprus, right offshore. And even worse, a small galley with Richard's sister Joan and his fiancée, Berengaria, well, that galley also gets blown off course and ends up stranded outside the Cypriot port of Limousin. Now, the island of Cyprus at this time is ruled by an interesting character in his own right, a man named Emperor Isaac Komnenos. Now, Emperor is a grand title, but don't be fooled. Isaac is really just the king of Cyprus. See, 
He calls himself an emperor because he is a relative of the Byzantine emperor, and he claims to be the rightful ruler of not just Cyprus, but the entire Byzantine Empire. And to help advance this claim, he has allied with Saladin, hoping eventually to invade the Byzantine Empire together, I guess, but Isaac now has an opportunity. And he can both get rich and help his ally Saladin at the same time. He sends some ships of his own out to go retrieve the treasure from Richard's wrecked ships, and then he invites Joan and Berengaria to come ashore as his guests. Well, they wisely refuse to do that, figuring he's just going to take them hostage, and they stay on their boat out in the harbor. But Isaac is able to capture some knights and sailors who had survived from those shipwrecks, and those individuals do become hostages. Here is how Roger of Howden describes King Richard's response. He says, quote, When news of this was brought to the king, he hastened to their rescue with many galleys and a great following of ships, and found the ladies outside the port of Limazun, exposed to the winds and sea. Then, in great wrath, he sent messengers to the emperor of Cyprus once, twice, and yet a third time, making his request with mild entreaty that his fellow pilgrims, whom the emperor was keeping in durance, should be restored to him together with their belongings. To whom the emperor made answer with proud words, refusing to surrender either the prisoners or their belongings, and saying that he had no fear of the king of England or of his threats. Then spoke the king to all his army, saying, To arms, and follow me. Let me take vengeance for the insults which this traitor hath put upon God and ourselves, and that he oppresses innocent men whom he refuses to surrender to us. But truly, he who rejects the just demands of one armed for the fray resigns all into his hands. And I trust confidently in the Lord that he will this day give us the victory over this emperor and his people. Unquote. Now, while Richard has been trying to negotiate with Isaac, Isaac has been fortifying the beach outside the city of Limazon. Uh, his men have even torn down stone buildings to create barricades to prevent the English from coming up the beach en masse. And Roger of Howden says that there are more defenders in Limousin than there are weapons. A lot of these defenders, as a result, they're simply carrying clubs. And this defense force will now be facing the medieval equivalent of the D-Day landings. This is an old-school amphibious assault. And if you want a visual image, the movie Troy, for all of its many, many, many issues, actually does feature a fairly decent representation of a uh, attack force landing on a beach in galleys. Now, Richard's knights would be armored, 
differently from the ancient Greeks. But other than that, you're seeing these fairly large warships get rowed right up through the surf and right up to the beach and knights jumping over the rail and coming up the shore. Now, these knights are protected by cover fire from a hail of English arrows coming from the galleys, and Isaac's archers fire back, so they're also being shot at as they come up the beach. But according to the stories, Richard is on the first ship to reach the shore, and first over the rail, and he personally leads this first wave of knights up the beach. And they're very heavily armored and not deterred much by Isaac's archers. And they quickly overwhelm these coastal defenses that Emperor Isaac has set up. And the emperor is forced to flee the city with his army. Richard actually pursues, chasing after him until nightfall. And during the pursuit, many of Isaac's soldiers are killed. Roger of Howden calls it a very great slaughter. But when nightfall does arrive, uh, Richard has to stop. He doesn't know the territory here, and he has to send out scouts to survey the land, and find out where Emperor Isaac is going to bed down for the night. And while this is going on, the city of Limousin itself is now safe, so Joan and Berengaria are able to come ashore and stretch their legs, even as Richard's men are looting the city, where they find large stores of grain and wine that can be used to supply them. And even as all of this is going on, Richard is aggressively preparing to continue the attack. He has his horses unloaded from the ships and walked up and down the beach to exercise them. You can imagine after being cooped up in a medieval ship for several days, a horse is going to need a little bit of exercise. And eventually, Richard's scouts return with word. They have found Isaac's camp. And on this moonlit night, King Richard is going to attack. Roger of Howden says, quote, The emperor, having rallied around him his men who were scattered amid the thickets in the mountain valleys, pitched his camp the same night on the banks of a river about five miles distant from the town of Limousin, declaring with an oath that he would fight the king of England on the morrow. The report whereof was brought by scouts to the king, who long before daylight armed himself and his men for battle, and advancing silently came upon the emperor's men, whom he found asleep. Then, with a loud and terrifying shout, he charged into their tents, and they, suddenly awakened from sleep, were as dead men, knowing not what to do nor whither to fly. The emperor himself escaped with a few men, naked, and leaving behind him all his treasure, his horses, his armor, his magnificent tents, and his imperial standard wrought all over with gold 
which the King of England at once dedicated to the blessed Edmund, king and martyr of glorious memory. On the morrow, many counts and barons of the kingdom came to the King of England and became his men, swearing fealty to him against the emperor and all men, and gave him hostages. Unquote. So, basically, in one day, Richard has launched an amphibious assault, taken a somewhat fortified city, and then pursued the enemy army inland overnight and defeated them again. And because of this, a whole lot of Emperor Isaac's underlings are just switching sides and swearing to Richard. Now, Richard the Lionheart is a controversial figure, but even his critics acknowledge that he was a brave and skilled commander. And this bold action outside of Limousin is an excellent example of Richard at his finest. But Isaac still has a bunch of Richard's money, and he still has a bunch of hostages. So, inadvertently, while on his way to Acre, Richard has now gotten sucked into this conflict in Cyprus, which is the last place he really wants to be, but here he is. And shortly thereafter, he gets a reminder that events are still moving forward at Acre. On May 11th, none other than Guy of Lusignan arrives in Cyprus, along with his brother Geoffrey. Now, Guy used to be the king of Jerusalem, but he was the king of Jerusalem because he had been married to the queen of Jerusalem named Sibylla. And when Sibylla died, Guy was no longer king, and Sibylla's heir, Isabella, was forced to marry the gentleman we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Conrad of Montferrat, who is now acting as king of Jerusalem. But meanwhile, Guy is essentially a king who has lost his kingdom. And it's complicated, but for various feudal reasons, uh, Richard is actually Guy's liege lord as uh, Duke of Aquitaine. And Richard is obligated to assist Guy. So Richard agrees to help Guy to regain the throne of Jerusalem in exchange for Guy's help with defeating Isaac right now. And as it turns out, later on that very same day, a messenger arrives from Isaac with an offer of peace. Isaac offers to repay all of Richard's money, and furthermore, he offers to hand over all of his castles to Richard as a pledge of goodwill and even accompany Richard on the crusade. Well, geez, this is almost too good to be true. Of course Richard accepts, and while the preparations are being made for the formal surrender on May 12th, uh, Richard finally marries Berengaria, his fiancée. He does this in the presence of his knights, of the former King Guy and Geoffrey, Guy's brother. And shortly thereafter, Isaac comes to Richard in person and swears fealty. But 
you know what they say. When something is too good to be true, it usually is. And as it turns out, Isaac's offer of surrender and even his oath of fealty were just a trick. Uh, he's only come so that he can see Richard's army in person and learn about their defenses in person. And soon after making this public oath of fealty, Isaac flees Richard's camp and returns to his army, and then he publicly takes back his oath and says that he will never, ever swear fealty to Richard again. And Roger of Howden tells us that Richard actually expected this and was pleased when Isaac escaped. Being a fighter, Richard had almost been disappointed at how easily he had conquered Isaac. He's spoiling for a fight. Well, he's got one. And Richard divides his army into three groups. One-third is put under the command of Guy of Lusignan, and this army remains on land. Their job is to press inland to fight Isaac's army and hopefully force an end to the affair right then and there. And the other two-thirds of the army set off by sea. One is commanded by Richard, and the other one's commanded by a knight named Robert of Tornham, and these two fleets go in opposite directions around the shore of the entire island of Cyprus. And everywhere they stop, they capture or burn all of Isaac's ships, and they leave a garrison in the ports. From what we can tell from the accounts, usually they face no opposition, by the way. The troops in these ports are mostly small garrisons, and... Richard is just kind of steamrolling here, in part based on reputation. Nobody wants to fight him. So his troops have a relatively easy time of securing all of these facilities. And within a few days, Richard effectively has the entire island of Cyprus under siege. Right? Not only is... Isaac on land with his army having to deal with Guy, but he can't get any supplies or help from outside because Richard controls all the ports. And after achieving this, Richard returns to land with the rest of his army and finds that Guy has not yet captured Isaac, but he has continued to pursue him, and he has sort of bottled Isaac up in the northeastern corner of the island and by the way, as he's gone along, uh, he's picked up a ton of more local allies. There's hardly anybody left in Cyprus at this point who is loyal to Isaac. And so the rest of the conquest happens fairly quickly and easily. Here is how Roger of Howden describes the last few days of the campaign. Quote, After this, the king of England hearing that the emperor's daughter was in a very strong castle called Charon, went thither with his army. On his approach towards the fortress, the emperor's daughter came to meet him, and, falling at his feet, did him obeisance, putting herself at the castle at his mercy. Then was delivered to him the exceeding strong castle called Bufavant, 
and after that all the towns and fortresses of the empire were surrendered. The wretched emperor lay in hiding in a certain strongly fortified abbey called Cape St. Andrea. Hearing that the king was at hand, he went out to meet him, and falling at his feet, prayed the king to spare him in life and limb, saying never a word about the realm, for as much as he knew that all was now in the king's hand and power. This only he begged from the king, that he would not suffer him to be bound in fetters of iron. The king heard his prayer, and put him in charge of Ralph, son of Godfrey, his chamberlain, to watch and ward, giving word that fetters of gold and silver should be made, to bind the emperor's hands and feet withal, and that he should be made fast in them. All these things befell in Cyprus in the month of June, on the first day of the month, being the vigil of Whitsunday. All things having been ordered for the security of the king's empire, and garrisons placed in the towns and castles, the king put in charge of Cyprus Richard of Camville and Robert of Tornham. Unquote. In addition to recovering his funds and his hostages, Richard is also able to take advantage of this unintended expedition to raise a little bit more money. See, under feudal tradition, he has the right to uh, enforce his own customs upon the people of Cyprus as their liege lord. So he could, for instance, just change all of their legal traditions overnight, if he is so inclined. But it is traditional in feudal society for a new lord to make allowances. And in this case, Richard imposes a 50% tax in exchange for the Cypriots keeping all of their local customs. This is a 50% tax on all the possessions of everybody on the island of Cyprus. As you can imagine, this does not go over well, and uh, Richard will ultimately go on to sell Cyprus to the Knights Templar to raise even more money for his armies. Well, amidst all of these grand doings, it's easy to forget about the average person. How did the typical Cypriot experience all of this? We have an answer of sorts from a priest named Neophytus, who lived in Cyprus at the time and wrote about his experience. And he says, quote, Strange things and unheard of have befallen this land, and such that all its rich men have forgotten their wealth, their fine dwellings, families, servants, slaves, their many flocks, herds, swine, cattle of all kinds, grain-bearing fields, fertile vineyards, and variegated gardens, and with great care and secrecy have sailed away to foreign lands and to the queen of cities. And those who could not fly who is fit to set forth the tragedy of their sufferings. The searches, the public prisons, the exaction of money squeezed from them, thousands upon thousands. 
But these, by the just judgment of God, were allowed to befall us on account of the burden of our sins, that we might be humbled and perchance be deemed worthy of forgiveness. Lo, the Englishman lands in Cyprus, and forthwith I'll run unto him. Then the king, abandoned by his people, gave himself also into the hands of the English. Him the English king bound in irons, and having seized his vast treasures and grievously wasted the land, sailed away to Jerusalem, leaving behind him ships to strip the country and to follow him. But King Isaac of Cyprus he shut up in chains in a castle called Marcapus. The wicked wretch achieved naught against his fellow wretch Saladin, but achieved this only, that he sold our country to the Latins for two hundred thousand pounds of gold. Whereon great was the wailing, and unbearable the smoke, as was said before which came from the north. He that would tell of them at length, the time shall fail him. Unquote. When all of this is complete, when all of his business on Cyprus is settled, on June 7th of 1191, Richard finally sets sail for Acre. And we have a record of this in the Itinerarium Peregrinorum at Gesta Regis Ricardi, which is a contemporary record of the Third Crusade cobbled together from two first-hand accounts. And this description of Richard's voyage is taken from the Helen J. Nicholson translation, which is translated as the Chronicle of the Third Crusade. Quote, King Richard and all his retinue hurried on joyfully and eagerly towards Acre, where his desire carried him. With a favorable wind behind them, the following night the fleet dropped anchor before Tyre. In the morning, the fleet weighed anchor and hoisted sail, and after a short voyage, Scandalion appeared, which has already been mentioned. Then, passing Casse Imbert, in the distance, the tall tower of the city of Acre came into view, and then, little by little, the rest of the city's fortifications. Acre was surrounded by an enormous besieging force. There were people from every Christian nation under heaven, the elite of the Christian people, well fitted for war and unremitting labor. By that time, they had been besieging Acre for a long time and had suffered many trials and tribulations constant exertion, lack of food, and many other hardships, some of which have been described already. Beyond the Christian army, the Turkish army also came into view. It was a countless horde, covering the mountains and valleys, hills and plains, with its tents of various designs and iridescent colors pitched everywhere. They also saw the pavilions of Saladin himself, and the tents of his brother Savadine and Tacadine, agent of paganism. He kept watch over the coast and the harbor, and launched frequent assaults and very serious raids on the Christians. King Richard surveyed the whole of their army, appraising it. When it was announced that he had arrived in the port, the king of France and the magnates, nobles, and chiefs of the whole native army came in procession to meet him. Having longed so much for his arrival, they received him with joy and exultation. Unquote. Upon landing, Richard finds his rival slash 
liege lord Philip II already hard at work. Philip has built seven huge catapults. Well, they might be trebuchets, the source calls them stone throwers, and he's flinging stones at Acre's walls day and night. Now, Philip's been there for several weeks at this point, and he's been bombarding the city, and now he's eager to attack at once, but Richard wants to wait a few more days, right? He has all these ships, which he had left at Cyprus, if you remember, to collect that tax and anything that might be useful for war, and those ships are going to come, and at that point the Crusader army will be that much stronger, and while Philip and Richard are still debating, Richard falls ill. Now, we're not really sure what he falls ill from, but within a week of landing at Acre, his hair and nails have fallen out. Well, just because he's sick and can't fight at the moment doesn't mean he can't do anything. Richard tries diplomacy. He sends a messenger to Saladin asking to negotiate, and Saladin refuses, so Richard then finds a North African Muslim prisoner of the Crusaders and has this prisoner freed and sent to Saladin as a sign of goodwill. In return, he asks if he could have a little bit of fruit and ice. And so contact between the two men is begun. And meanwhile, Philippe II is conducting his own separate negotiations with the garrison inside the city of Acre. But ultimately, Richard and Philippe's efforts at diplomacy would come to nothing, at least for the time being. And there are further divisions beyond Richard and Philippe not even conducting negotiations together as a team. Richard supports Guy of Lusignan. He supports Guy as the king of Jerusalem, and Philippe stands behind the new king, Conrad of Montferrat. And this comes to a head. There's a heated argument where Geoffrey, Guy's brother, accuses Conrad of treason, and at that, Conrad returns to his city of Tyre. He officially remains king of the kingdom of Jerusalem, but he has removed himself from the vicinity of Acre, and this has put a lid on the debate over who should be king, at least for now. And while Richard is still in bed sick, Philippe runs out of patience and tries to storm the walls on his own. Now this is risky because with Richard still sick, the English troops and frankly all of the Angevin troops, right, including those from France, uh, those troops are not going to fight. Right? Philippe is going to have to fight with his own smaller force of French troops. Well, he tries anyway, and not only does the attack fail, but Saladin, right, with his force outside the Crusader camp blocking them in, well, when he sees King Philippe trying to take the city, 
he orders an attack on the Crusader camp, and he nearly overruns the Crusaders' defenses. Here is what the itinerarium has to say on this matter. Quote, When the Turks on the outer side saw and heard this, meaning the attack on the city, they charged forward together, bringing with them material of any sort to fill in the ditch so that they could cross more easily and attack our people. However, they were unable to carry this out. Geoffrey de Lusignan, a knight of extraordinary prowess, resisted them magnificently and drove them back from the barricade which they had already seized from our people. He killed more than ten of them with the axe he was wielding. No one he struck got away alive. He also captured a great many alive. He bore himself with such confidence and agility that every mouth declared that never since the time of those renowned knights Roland and Oliver had any knight been worthy of so much praise. Unquote. Despite this courageous defense of the Crusader camp, Philippe is unable to conquer the city of Acre without Richard's help. And shortly after this attempted attack, it seems that Louis gets sick with whatever Richard's got. Uh, his hair and nails fall out, but he recovers fairly quickly, and... Uh, Unfortunately, Richard is still sick, but Richard's ships from Cyprus are starting to come in. They're bringing material for building stone throwers of his own. And they're also bringing more money and supplies for his troops and all the other things you need to win a war. And when you read about these siege engines, it's reminiscent of... Things you'll read about in modern warfare where soldiers uh, name their equipment, like tanks and airplanes and things of that nature. Here's a little section from the itinerarium that illustrates that. Quote, The king of France made a swift recovery from his illness and concentrated on constructing siege machines and placing stone throwers in suitable places. He arranged for these to fire continually day and night. He had one excellent one, which he called Bad Neighbor. The Turks in the city had another one, which they called Bad Relation, which often used to smash Bad Neighbor with its violent shots. The king kept rebuilding it, until its continual bombardment partly destroyed the main city wall and shattered the cursed tower. On one side, the Duke of Burgundy's stone thrower had no little effect. On the other, the Templar's stone-thrower wreaked impressive devastation, while the Hospitallers also never ceased hurling to the terror of the Turks. Besides these, there was a stone-thrower which had been constructed at general expense, which they called God's stone-thrower. A priest, a man of great probity, always stood next to it preaching and collecting money for its continual repair, and for hiring people to gather stones for its ammunition. This machine at last demolished the wall next to the cursed tower for around two perches length. That's around 33 feet. The Count of Flanders had had a choice stone thrower, which King Richard had after his death, as well as another which was not so good. These two constantly bombarded the tower next to a gate which the Turks frequently used until the tower was half demolished. 
Besides these, King Richard had two new ones made with remarkable workmanship and material, which would hit the intended target no matter how far off it was. He also built a very strongly constructed machine with steps for climbing up into it. Commonly called a belfry, it was closely covered with a layer of hides, rope netting, and very solid wooden boarding, so that it could not be destroyed by a missile from a stone thrower, nor by Greek fire, nor be damaged by anything else. He also had two mangonels prepared. One of these was so swift and violent that its shots reached the inner streets of the city meat market. King Richard's stone throwers hurled constantly by day and night. It can be firmly stated that one of them killed twelve men with a single stone. That stone was sent for Saladin to see with messengers who said that the diabolical king of England had brought from Messina, a city he had captured, sea flint and the smoothest stones to punish the Saracens. Nothing could withstand their blows. Everything was crushed or reduced to dust. Yet the king was defined to bed, suffering from a severe fever, completely wretched because he saw the Turks insolently challenging and attacking our people with increasing frequency, but he could not engage them in battle because he was ill. He suffered more torture from the insolent Turkish raids than from the burning fever. Unquote. This is reminiscent of modern warfare in a couple ways. We mentioned the soldiers naming their siege engines. Well, in addition, the various members of this military coalition are all providing their own equipment. The French have their catapults, the English and other Angevin troops under King Richard have their own catapults, the various crusading orders of monks have their own equipment. It's like a coalition war today, when NATO troops went to Afghanistan over the last couple decades, you didn't see Canadian soldiers show up and just help themselves to some American equipment. They brought their own stuff. And yet at the same time, this siege is a little bit bizarre to us modern people. I mean, here we have this one siege engine, Godstone Thrower, which is funded by donations to a priest. I mean... Imagine American soldiers going off to war somewhere in the Middle East, and they get there, and the first thing they encounter is someone asking for donations to fund their artillery. It's a little bit wild to us modern people, but if you lived in medieval times, this was perfectly normal. Anyway, for the next couple of weeks, this is what happens. The Crusaders are sitting outside Acre, throwing stones at the city. But in early July, the French try another assault, this time from the east side of the city. And Richard, while still confined to his stretcher, agrees to help. He is going to be carried along the front line. And the French assault on the walls is initially successful. There is a knight named Aubrey de Clermont, who is a very important figure in France at the time, and he swears to capture the city or die trying. Well, he makes it to the top of the wall, but he dies trying. And 
as the French are being pushed back from the east wall, Richard and his English are assaulting the city from the north, trying to take some of the pressure off of the French. And still on his stretcher, Richard is carrying a crossbow. And according to the itinerarium, one of the Muslim defenders has put on the helmet of Aubrey de Clermont, this famous French knight who was killed, and now he's taunting the crusaders and running along the wall, mocking them, and Richard, from his stretcher, sees this and shoots this defender in the chest and kills him. Quite the shot, quite the story. Probably embellished a little bit, but it is indicative of what was going on that day. And despite the Crusaders' best efforts, this assault, too, would be unsuccessful. So Richard and Philippe try another approach. Through mid-July, not only are they throwing stones, but they are digging tunnels. They are digging under various walls and towers, and between that and the bombardment, the walls are crumbling in many places. And at one point, there is a particularly stubborn wall next to a tower at a key defensive point. And it's at an angle where the stone throwers can't hit it very well, and the sappers, the miners, have not been able to successfully undermine it. So Richard makes use of his treasury to remove this part of the wall. He offers gold to any man who can grab a stone from it. And as insane as that plan sounds, it actually works. Here is what the itinerarium has to say on the subject. Quote, the king considered the difficulties which they had encountered, how warlike their enemies were, and that courage is needed at critical junctures. He decided that the best way to arouse enthusiasm in the young was to offer a reward rather than to force them by commands, because everyone is attracted by the smell of money. So he resolved that a public crier should announce that everyone who took one stone from the wall next to the aforesaid tower would receive two gold coins from the king. Later, he promised three gold coins. Finally, four so that for each stone that anyone took from the wall, they received four gold coins in payment. You would have seen youths leap forward, and men-at-arms of great valor rush to the wall and eagerly keep on pulling out stones, as greedy for glory as for gain. Even among the darts of their adversaries, they boldly pressed on with the destruction of the wall. A great many of them were wounded and had to abandon the work. Others gave up because they were afraid of the mortal danger. Some the Turks manfully drove back from the wall. Their shields and armor were unable to protect them. The wall was extremely high and not a little thick. However, men of valorous spirit overcame the danger and took a great many stones from the body of the wall. Unquote. Now by this point, most of Acre's double walls are little more than rubble, and the front line between the besiegers and the besieged runs along gaps in the rubble pile. Saladin has been waiting. 
He's been waiting for a fleet to arrive from Egypt with more troops, enough to finally crush the Crusaders once and for all. But with the city this close to complete collapse, he is risking a massacre. If the Crusaders have to fight their way into Acre, many, many of the people in that city are going to be put to the sword. So on July 12th, 1191, Saladin gives the garrison of Acre permission to surrender. And after nearly two years of siege, the city does indeed surrender. And the agreement that Saladin comes to with the Crusaders is that the city itself and all of its contents are to be handed over. But the people of Acre, those who wish to leave, the Muslims of Acre, they will be free to go. They will only be allowed to carry the clothes on their backs, but this is not going to be a horrendous massacre like we often see when a city falls to a siege. This is going to be at least relatively bloodless, especially compared to the battle that preceded it. Now, the most important thing the Crusaders get, in addition to the land in the city, right, in its ports, well, they get the 70-ship Muslim fleet in Acres Harbor. Those ships are things that are inside the city, and they have to be turned over. Saladin does not merely agree to surrender the city. He agrees to pay 200,000 gold coins. Now, I could not find specific information on the exact coins which he agrees to pay the Crusaders, but it equates to tens of millions of dollars today, at, at the very least. And finally, uh, Saladin releases 2,000 Christian nobles and 500 uh, Christian prisoners of ordinary birth. And I must correct myself here at least somewhat. See, in The Horns of Hatin, two episodes ago, I said that the true cross had been lost to history at the end of the battle. I should have been more clear. That particular true cross was lost in the battle that was uh, a fairly large piece of wood in a gold enclosure. Now, there are other surviving smaller pieces, mostly splinters, left from the cross. And, at least supposedly, right? And the smaller relic in the local church in Acre still survives. And Saladin agrees to hand that over. And while this is a smaller relic of the cross, it plays a similar role in the Third Crusade to the role of the True Cross in the First Crusade. It is a talisman for the Crusaders. As a matter of fact, even the itinerarium calls it a talisman. And this relic is also 
guaranteed by Saladin to be handed over to the Crusaders when they take the city. Of course, this battle was not free. On the Crusader side, there were approximately 19,000 casualties. Now, most of these would have been foot soldiers, right? spearmen and archers who made up the bulk of the army. But there were also 500 lesser nobles, 40 counts, major nobles, 12 bishops and 6 archbishops who died in the siege. On the Muslim side, the garrison of Acre lost between five and 10,000 men. And Saladin's relief army on the other side of the Crusaders' camp, well, their losses are harder to estimate, but were certainly north of 10,000. And Richard is often criticized for taking too long to get to Acre. The argument goes that if he had just left his sister in Sicily and not gone after his loot and his sister again and his fiancée off of Cyprus, that he could have gotten to Acre months earlier and had a much bigger impact much sooner, and many of those crusaders as well as Muslim defenders would not have died. The battle would have been shorter. It would have been over. And I think what some of these arguments overlook is that the money and the resources Richard gained from Cyprus were impactful to the war. And furthermore, had he not gone to Cyprus after his treasure ship, he wouldn't even have been able to pay his men when he got to Acre. There would have been other problems. If not for his delay, it's possible the Crusaders would never have taken Acre. And if I seem a little salty about this, it's because I am. When researching this episode, I read a paper by a history professor who focused entirely on the element of time and characterized Richard's adventure in Cyprus as just this thing he sort of did on a whim because he had the opportunity to conquer something. And this professor never even acknowledged the element of money or resources which are so important to fighting a war. Anyway... Salty sidebar over. The Crusaders have now established a beachhead in the Holy Land. They control Acre and its ports, and thanks to having all of these ships, both from Richard and the ones captured at Acre, they have complete naval dominance in the Mediterranean. And unlike the soldiers in the Second Crusade, they have a clear-cut goal. The goal is to take the city of Jerusalem back from Saladin. But this war is far from over. Like the siege of Acre is just the first battle. Acre is a blow to Saladin's reputation. Before this, 
He was the undefeated champion of Middle Eastern warfare. But now he has at least one loss on his record, and he has to withdraw with his army, which is still intact, and he has to lick his wounds. But that army is still between the Crusaders and Jerusalem. They're going to have to go through it. And even as they do, dynastic and national divisions are going to come into play more and more and more as time goes on. And these will serve to drive wedges between the various crusader leaders. And if all of that is not enough, Richard himself will have to deal with a threat at home as his wily brother Prince John tries to seize power for himself. Can Richard, Guy, and Philip continue to lead a cohesive army? And what will happen when they finally meet Saladin in battle? We'll find out in our next episode. Hello again, it's Dan, and I'm here to ask for your help. See, we're trying to promote this show and get the word out to as many people as possible, so... If you have a minute, please share on your favorite social media. Send a link to the episode or even to our website at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. If this is your first time listening to the show, don't miss a future episode. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google, Spotify, or just about any other service you want to listen to a podcast on. You can find an RSS link as well as a link to all these other services, again, at dantollerpodcast.com. If you want news on the latest episodes or anything that is upcoming in the world of relevant history, you can find us at dantollerpodcast on Twitter or at dantoller on Facebook. Finally, if you've got a few dollars and you'd like to provide some financial support to the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Alternatively, you can also support the show at subscribestar.com. You can find us there at Relevant History. And for everything else, including links to interviews and my blog, which may or may not ever get updated, once again... Dan Toller Podcast, Dan T O L E R Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.